recording on Squadcast. Got my roadcaster. So whenever we're ready with that awesome intro. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the Association of Common Sense Masculinity is proud to present the exciting, the thought-provoking Can-Am Soup, an entertaining, genuine, and often meandering conversation between two friends. And now, the stars of our show, Jeremy Gertz and Todd Fuss. Hey, Todd, how you doing, buddy? Doing good, Jeremy. How about you? Oh, good. Good. I'm, I don't know. I'm usually optimistic the last couple of weeks. I don't know why. Maybe because the, the weather's so nice. And you know what I love in the summertime here? Like, we're still into a heat wave thing. Like, we're st- still stupid hot every day. But in the morning when you go out and it's got that cool, but the air is uh, it's real heavy with the smells. You know, like you can smell the grass, you can smell the trees, and the, oh, man. I love it. Every morning, I get up early, go outside, just stand out there with a cup of coffee, and it's just like, oh man, it's so good. And then the yeah, afternoon. you know, kind of the same way here, but our smells are a little different since I'm right next to uh, uh, not only a farm but uh, a cattle ranch. <laughs> yeah, well, that's we are like I'm a I don't know I would say a half a mile from a feedlot, and maybe, oh yeah, god. Maybe about, the one thing is that, that we kind of talked about this before we bought this land. The prevailing winds, most of the time, they don't come this way. So I would say there's five days a year where, where we know that we live beside a feedlot. And it's, <laughs> oh, man, it's bad news, bear. It's disgusting. Either that or when they do manure spreading. Um, there's a whole bunch of plots of land around us that uh, this gentleman's name is Mason Raymond. He used to play for the Calgary Flames, professional NHL player, and uh, really good guy. I liked him. And uh, he actually did junior or whatever in, in Strathmore for the UFA Bison. But when he retired from hockey, he seems like a smarter guy. Um, I, it was one of these things where he just kind of traded here, traded there. And then I, I think, you know, he wasn't injured or anything. It wasn't like he was, he just said, you know what, I, th- I don't know. He had like eight years in the NHL or something like that. But he bought up a bunch of farmland and it's all right around us. And it's funny because I was out running, it was a couple of years ago, I was out for a jog and uh he was, he's parked his truck and he's putting in some irrigation stuff and he goes, Hey, how are you doing? I'm, I'm kind of a new neighbor here. I just got this land. I was like, Mason Raymond, how are you doing? He goes, what are you talking about? I said, you're Mason Raymond. He goes, well, how do you know? I said, uh, <laughs> like, dude, come on. You played for the Calgary flames. That's my team. You're a world famous athlete. You know, anybody who's into hockey probably knows who you are and what you look like. But, uh, yeah, it was kind of funny. And, um, talk to him but so he bought all this land that was just pasture land before and he started using it for hay and when he bought this land I don't know where he got this much manure but he put it seems like he put almost like a foot thick of crap all over the fields man and it was it was a couple weeks when it was just ripe it's like dude you know it's really cool that we got like a famous hockey player we can talk to and but man (laughs) think of your neighbors but yeah, he's a, he's a young guy. He's out there like doing fencing and all this stuff, doing it all himself. And he's got some hired men. He bought quite a bit of land. He's got a lot of equipment too. Uh, but he was, I was talking with him and uh, he said, yeah, I just wish I could get my wife to move out here. You know, because he lives in Calgary and he said, ah, she's too much of a city girl. So it goes, I come out here and pretend to be a farmer all day long. And then I have to go back into the city and <laughs> live there. But it's kind of funny. Yeah, for the most part, we don't get those nasty smells, but I know what you mean sometimes, eh? Ugh. Yeah, in the town I grew up in, 
the town next to it was a the bigger town, right? We were just like a it's all one big conglomeration of crap with just city limit signs butted up against each other now. Uh near Fedville, North Carolina. Anyway, I grew up in Hope Mills and in Fedville, uh right at the border of Fedville and East Fedville, there was a we had uh sewage treatment plant, a dog food factory, and something else. <laughs> and at five o'clock every day, the something would happen with both of those plants and they would exhaust some you know, whatever. Uh. And it just you know, you have this raw sewage smell <laughs> and then whatever the dog food factory is exhausting. Wow. Oh the most horrific thing in the world. Oh no kidding. Then when I was, you know, a very young tweener, you know, 13, 14, I started working on a, a small farm for some extra money. Just one of my side hustles after school on weekends. And the guy was a old, he was very old, but he was old school farmer. And he would use what I can only describe as, uh, is uh, liquid manure that they spray on your uh, farming field, but it's a concentrated form of that. Yeah. It's the most horrific smell oh. to this day I've ever smelled, and I've had to clean out uh, dead bodies in the summer. I've had to clean out... <laughs> uh, when we lived in Florida, in the middle of the summer, we went on vacation, came back, found out... We hadn't had power for a week, and we had a whole hog in a freezer Ugh. that is now soup. <laughs> yeah. We have pork soup in <laughs> our in our freezer, you know. And if you've ever smelled that, um, have, yeah, we got broad meat. We had to get rid of it because no matter what we did, we couldn't get the smell out of the freezer. Yeah, I've had in a fact, freezer do that. I think we gave it to somebody because they're like, "Oh, we'll take it," and then they wound up throwing it away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh-huh, that's what I thought. Yeah. You know, the, the, that smell reminds me of, I had the worst experience I've ever had in my life on my motorbike uh, this week. You know, a lot of farms, you ever see the trucks that pick up dead animals for people? Yeah. Yeah. And and so they're very distinctive. Once you've kind of seen them, they they all look the same, they function the same, because you got to be able to, you know, grab a horse basically and put it in there and it's the top's all open. But I was stuck in traffic behind one of these things and it was about 35 degrees out and just the way traffic was moving I couldn't slow down to kind of put distance between me and him and I couldn't speed up and there was a crosswind kind of at a diagonal and it was literally hitting the truck perfect and bringing it right to me and I was gagging trying not to puke on my motorbike I was driving along (laughs) I'm trying not to breathe I'm like okay just don't breathe don't breathe and we're going we're going and this is all in town and I only had like a block or two to go, but oh, I was like, you know, for everything I love about motorcycles and I'm just crazy about this bike of mine, I'm like, this is, this is a bad experience, man. This is not cool. Oh, nasty. You know, about uh, this time of the year, about 20 years ago, we were outside of uh, D.C. into Maryland, and we were stuck behind a presidential motorcade doing about four miles an hour. Wow. And the 
truck in front of us had, I bet you, 30 dead skunks in it, you know, 10 or 20 possums, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, oh, my God. That's nasty. Really? And you're just, you can't turn around. You can't make any kind of, uh, you can't do anything that would draw attention to yourself when you're following a presidential motorcade. That makes sense, right? Because, you know, then people, angry men with guns uh, come to, you know. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. Never thought about that. But anyway. Yeah. Oh, good news. Uh, Some exciting news here. We don't have to wear masks anywhere now. So Alberta got rid of the mask mandate last week. And then, so Strathmore, they didn't have, and and at that point, it was kind of up to each individual, a local government, each town or city. And then Calgary voted, I think it was on Monday. And it was like four to eight or something or like eight to four to get rid of it. But because it wasn't unanimous, they had to have another hearing. And so they had another one later that afternoon. And same thing, the majority got, they said, no, we don't need the mask mandate. So you don't have to wear a mask. And it is, oh, it is so good. It's unbelievable. You know what, to to me, it seems like, uh, you know, so I went into Canadian Tire, like a hardware store here. And I was talking to the lady and this was the, the the day that we didn't have to, and uh, I leaned, she's an older lady, and I leaned over and I said, isn't it nice to see people's faces again? And she looked up and smiled so bright, and she goes, it is so unbelievable. I said, like, you can see me smiling at you, and we can, you know, I said, it is, and she goes, oh, and she was almost tearing up. She goes, it was so wrong what they've done to us, and I feel like that too. I mean, not to get into all the blah, 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 but I feel like they stole our faces away, you know? I feel like never again... Will we ever let them steal our faces? That's the way I stand. And uh, even Nenchi, the the mayor of Calgary, said that, uh, you know, because of all this, like nobody, there's the odd people that still go into stores with a mask, but he had made a thing, said, you know, if we get rid of this mask mandate, you'll probably never be able to bring one in again because the people won't have it because everybody's so done with it, right? And yeah. uh, t- to a certain extent, man, I really hope that's true, you know. Well, now that you brought it up, <clears throat> I got two things okay. about this. And you might want to keep your, keep your finger near your flag button. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding. Um, about two months ago, three months ago, sometime between April and now, very close to April, uh, back when uh, my wife and I got the, uh, the Wuhan vaccine, uh, March and April. Uh, no. Yes, it was in March. It was in March. Uh, the powers that be with the Wuhan uh, here in America said the vaccine is good. Get the vaccine. However, it just protects you. Doesn't mean you can't also still carry it, mm-hmm. you know, that you can't be contagious. You're just not going to get it from yourself. Okay. All right? That's what they said. Yeah. Yesterday. Yesterday, I hear that there's this ongoing uh, controversy about 
children being vaccinated and you know school children being vaccinated. Yeah. All right. So they recommend ages 12 and up be vaccinated along with all of the other childhood vaccines you get. Um, mumps, measles, rubella, blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm-hmm. And they want to add COVID to that so that not only are you protected, but you're protecting everyone around you. So you're not a carrier. And I just like full stop back up. Now you're lying. Yeah. Which is it? Cause you can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. You can't have it both ways. You know, one mask, two mask, no mask, get the vaccine. Oh no. The vaccine doesn't really help everybody else. It only helps you. Now it helps everybody. Yeah. But which is it people? Well, to carry that, you know, here, so now, I think like the Canadian government, they're trying to milk this thing as hard as they possibly can, and they now like we're on, <laughs> we're on to our fourth variant. Ooh, everybody be afraid! Uh, but and so it's like the something D or whatever. I, I don't know, but the, these all these news reports are coming out saying that people that have gotten the vaccine are getting this new mutation of it. And so they said, you know, there's really no difference between people that are in the hospital now with this new variant. They say it's about the same number of people that have had the vaccine as haven't. So they said, you know, is it it even effective? Of course, they don't use that, but they're trying to scare everybody. Even if you've had a vaccine, you still need to protect yourself. You still need to, you know, practice social distancing. You should still wear a mask because even vaccinated people are getting the new variant. And it's just like, oh, my word, come on, people. Like, how long do we just sit there just choking on this Kool-Aid? They're shoving down our throats without thinking for one second with their own brains. Like, do not engage your brain. Whatever you're told, that's what you believe. You know, and I just like, oh, my word. Fully retarded. This entire world has gone full retard right over the edge. Woohoo! <laughs> so dumb. Well, the only other thing I wanted to say about it is finally I heard somebody explain all of this. As mu- well as it can be explained, all right? And believe it or not, it was that mushroom head, Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. He was, um, Jim Brewer was on his show. I don't know who and that is. And if there ever was an... Uh, Jim Brewer used to be funny. Was he comedian? Now he's just a weirdo. I mean, he really is. He believes stuff that, to me, is akin to him being a flat earther. But anyway, so Joe Rogan says, and I'm going to simplify this so we can just move on to something else. Uh, Wuhan's a thing. You know, COVID-19 is a thing. There is something called COVID-19, and it's a virus. And some people can get the virus. And some people get the virus, never know it. Some people get a little sick. Some people get a lot sick, and they die. However, 96% of the people that died from COVID had two or more additional morbidity factors Two or more additional morbidity factors, Mm -hmm. such as obesity, diabetes, uh, 
Alzheimer's, and the list goes on. Yep. Also, old age is a morbidity factor. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, being an infant is a morbidity factor. But anyway, um, so like the flu and countless other viruses that make you sick, if you have additional morbidity factors, that virus is going to affect you differently than it would an average person. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, you don't have to go with, if you're an intelligent person, even moderately intelligent, that explanation right there tells you all you need to know, shut up and move on with your life. Exactly. And I, I don't, I, I don't know what it is because, you know, there's different types of intelligence. I, I don't know, like, and, and same thing, like even the simple fact that in Alberta, they did not report the flu, right? Like every year they have flu reports and I'm not sure why, uh, probably because they want everyone to get a, a flu vaccine, the regular old flu vaccine. But this year they said, oh, because of the pandemic, we're not going to actually report on any flu. So every thing that showed up as COVID-19, it could have been a flu, but it was labeled COVID-19 because whether people like the idea of of thinking this or they don't, there is an agenda here. Like there is something going on. And I think for people to deny that. No, it's a hundred percent agenda based. And I don't know what it is. Like, like I don't have the solution. I can't say, you know, I've got some ideas. I think this could be like a great way for China to just take control. Um, you know, if people are willing to actually think about some truth, but, and, and there's so many things like, you know, it's funny because my parents, they both had the shot. They got it down in the States. They're fully vaccinated. And, you you know, they don't want to think about the bad things. Right. And I think, you know, so that's their generation. My generation, I'm very, very cynical. And I think it has to do with a lot of things that I saw growing up. Uh, you know, you see these big companies, you know, Enron and all this scandal and stuff and and then government scandals. And I'm just kind of like, you know what? I don't trust it. I, I don't know. I, I somehow grew up with a sense of I don't trust government. I, I never have. I've never felt they've always had my best interest. And there's a certain sense where my parents, some of their upbringing was that they did. And, you know, when my parents were brought up, it was at the very end of the point where, you know what, you come out of high school or college you get a good job with a good company, you put in your 40 years, whatever, 50 years, and then you get your pension and your watch and they'll look after you and you'll be set. And that was completely obliterated by the time I entered the workforce. There's no such thing as that, right? And so they have this kind of thing that the big, you know, whether it's government or companies, they have this automatic trust placed in them. And it's like, no, I'm, I'm sure they mean well, I'm sure. Whereas I'm the opposite. I'm like, okay, how are they trying to screw us next? And I don't know, like, I think too far on either side is unhealthy. So I I think a little bit in the middle, I mean, you know what, there are good big companies, there are good places to work that like their employees and look after them. And there are, I don't know, I, maybe I'm still holding on to the hope that I think there are some decent politicians. Uh, I, I think the only level I really see him is the lower you are in government. Uh, but then even like I look at Strathmore's local government, and these guys are a bunch of crooks, man. The stuff they're doing, I'm like, oh, man. But I don't know. And so I, I talked to my parents about this stuff. 
I'm like, no, no. And I'm like, so you really think it's from bat soup? And there's like all the things that came out that disprove that. And right from the beginning, the very moment, like we got back from Grand Cayman, like on March 1st, 2020. And I said, we heard about this bat soup. I said, there's no way it's a bat soup. I said, if they eat bat soup, they've been eating bat soup for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it's not like us all of a sudden just going to happen. It, it doesn't work like that. Um, it was never. Any, no. It, anybody who believes it is a complete dipshit. Yeah. And. <sighs> but and, and go in back, everything. Go back to when it first hit the media when it was first being reported that there's a potential all the way back when they said potential global pandemic of COVID-19 they started reporting that it started in Wuhan oh and by the way there's a Chinese you know viral factory there um uh you know uh chemical Viral and Viral Warfare Research Center yeah. in Wuhan. Well, all you had to do is Google that and you know it. Mm-hmm. I happen to know it because I've been to that area of China once. And uh, the people that we were ferrying back and forth on the airplane uh, were State Department, you know, I'll say CIA, NSA, CDC and uh, the chemical warfare kind of people that work for the United States. Yeah. And, you know, they went there to do an inspection because we had treaties in place at that time. They, they can inspect our labs. We can inspect theirs. Well, they went to Wuhan. They weren't allowed past the visitor center. Oh, yeah. Mm. Inspect all you want. But they're making the stuff over there. Yeah, but you can inspect here. It's the way the Chinese are. So, and then within about two weeks, two weeks to a month, it started, the narrative started changing to, well, you know, there's this big food market there. And yeah, yeah, because, and that wasn't from the current administration. That was all coming from the sidelines. Hmm. Right. And then the uh, the usual suspects in global media picked that up, the bat thing, and ran with it and just completely covered up the uh, Wuhan lab theories until recently. Yeah. And <clears throat> here's the way I see it, and I can be wrong, but I don't think I am. We had some very well-meaning medical professionals in several governments that were concerned about COVID-19 and a global pandemic. They wanted to get the warning out, and they wanted people to be safe. Then government people took over, and all government people have a – uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Agenda. An agenda. All everybody has an agenda mm-hmm. because they were elected on an agenda. Yeah. And then they have their personal agenda to gain power and keep power and stay in office and all of those things. Oh look, 
we have a new platform called COVID-19. We can take hostage and run with it. Yeah. And that's what I, that's what I believe happened. I agree too. Yeah. Uh, it was an opportunity. I, and I say that as someone with 30 years of government experience Yeah. that quit, almost went, almost had a nervous breakdown and almost died uh, of a stroke trying to do the right thing, trying to fight against things like that. And I found I was so much in the minority, I just quit and moved on with my life. Uh, because people that try to do the people with the Superman attitude of truth, justice, and the American way just get curb stomped in Washington, D.C., hmm. period. Yeah. And uh, I know a guy that got elected to office, uh, and he got curb stomped up there. He said, if you try to do the right thing, if you don't pull the party line, we're going to make sure you're not elected again. Hmm. And oh, by the way, here's a fake, completely fabricated um, electronic and social media dossier we're going to release on you. This is what he told me. Uh, if you don't play along, yeah. holy poo-poo Batman. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. You know, that stuff you see in the movie, well, it really happens. Yeah. Um, and then you have some very successful, not so much today, but then a couple of years ago, very successful uh, new politicians that come in because they're, you know, they have a, uh, they're, they're walking into office with a reputation a global reputation, like Dan Crenshaw, for instance, old one-eye Dan Crenshaw, goes in there and says publicly, I'm fighting for this. Then you see him in private meetings, and he's just party-line Paul. Hmm. And he is. Um, he got out there and spoke with fervor about fighting for the rights and this and that and the other. Then he, behind closed doors, he completely and utterly supported red flag laws. Hmm. And that the small people that we're in here trying to protect shouldn't have the same guns as of us. Yeah. Swear to God, heard it with my own two ears in a meeting uh, and about threw up in my mouth, seeing an, an alleged American hero up there saying that, um, we're literally beneath him. Yeah. No, you're a piece of poop. Yeah. In my opinion, just for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you, the, the, the thing that I always think that would make everything better is <clears throat> if you could get people to, to take a little bit more responsibility for themselves and less dependence on the government and shrink governments down back to what they should have, you know, but what, what they ideally would have been, you know, the government wants every part of everyone's life, and it's just, oh, it's so... It is, but it's not every government. It's yeah, it a particular is. ideology, right? Now, that particular ideology happens to be in power in most Western governments right now. Yeah. A socialist or communist or extreme leftist ideologies believe they need to control every minute of everybody's life they yeah. control the narrative, you know, everything. They just yeah. want to control everything. Yeah. And unfortunately, 
I don't have a plan how to undo some of this stuff um, because uh, the sheeple are just that, you know, yeah. how do you wake these people up? Just, yeah. I don't know how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> he said, it was funny. is interesting. Um, <laughs> I remember on my other podcast, when I did it myself, simple life podcast, I, was, I said something and I was talking about sheeple. And then it was the next week on the Knife Talk podcast, <laughs> Jeff Vader comes and goes, here's one thing. And this is kind of like in the thick of the, the COVID. Like it was like maybe April or I don't know when it was last year, but he said, here's, everybody needs to stop. Stop saying sheeple. And it's like, oh, it offended you. That means you are one. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, it's so funny. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, I, I think people, it's because they're soft, you know, and, um, it, you know, the thing I tell people, people are like, I don't know if it's, I said, the thing I have a hard time with all of this pandemic is that we've been told things and those things they've contradicted directly and they won't take responsibility for even the fact. And I understand like, okay, this is fast moving. Science is fast moving. And part of science and, and medical research is being wrong. I'm not saying they're not allowed to be wrong, but when we have these complete contradictions, and, and everybody still says, okay, boom. And it was such a knee-jerk reaction. You know, this can't be transmitted human to human. Good. You know, cease world health. Who said that? Right? And then, oh, it can be. But uh, blah, 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 blah. And then every day they change the rules. And I remember people talking about how it can live on cardboard for 15 minutes. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Like, who cares? And all this stuff. And then... In, and then there's just so many discrepancies with, you know, news stories about New York City hospitals and, and they had to bring in these refrigeration trucks as inter-morgues because there's so many bodies. There's video on YouTube just for two days of a guy who went on his bicycle and to the hospital that they had that set up at, the lineups of people getting in and there was nobody there. There was nobody there. He said this, I, I'm afraid to say it, but this looks like it was a staged film. And then they even get caught you know, sharing some footage from Italy and saying it was in New York. So when the media starts getting involved in lying, that's when I step back and say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not something where people are trying to protect us for own good. This is, this is pushing it way too hard, way too hard. And then stories leak about the Canadian government using um, propaganda as an experiment to see how they can control people's behavior. And this is a fact. And even the defense minister commented on it, saying we didn't want this to get out. It's part of our research. We're just trying to learn how uh, propaganda could be useful, uh, you know, if, if in, a, in a situation where we need to control people's movement. And that's never useful. It's, it's never a government's job to control movement of the people. I don't care if you're at war right? You're still a free citizen. You should be able to move around. So they said that there's a pack of wolves at large in this small little town somewhere out east, in Newfoundland or Nova Scotia. I, I forget which one, but, and they told people, they kind of hacked the radio waves and local, like online news and stuff like social media news and said, there's a pack of wolves. You need to remain in your house because people are being eaten alive. And then they actually went out and observed how many people would leave their houses, what they would do when they'd leave their houses, and when, like, when that happens during a pandemic, and then the Canadian government actually sends officers to China to learn how China uses propaganda, and then the Canadian government is training Chinese military forces for extreme weather fighting conditions, I'm just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, now, now you're going to have a hard time for me to believe anything. 
Like, really. It's like over and over and over and over. And if people would just be willing to look for one second and say, wait a minute, maybe the government isn't really all as good as I think it is, right? Are they absolutely sinister and evil? I like to think not, and I like to think it's just for their own financial game. But then you look at China, and they're just, you know, there's genocides going on over there. They're killing off Muslims like crazy. And I'm kind of like, no, I do believe governments can be evil. You know, Adolf Hitler, I think he was an evil man. I really do. And I believe that his government was a horrible, horrible thing that hated human beings. And I don't know what their ultimate agenda was. I mean, obviously, maybe he was just an extreme racist and want to get rid of the Jews. Good luck with that. Uh, you know, they've got a sacred pact with God. So you don't really want to mess around with those people too much. But my word, I just, I just don't understand how seemingly most of society can just eat what they're fed on a spoon without looking at it. It's like, oh, here, have some potatoes. Okay, I'm not even going to look at it. That doesn't look like potatoes. I, I don't know. I just don't get it. Drink well, the Kool-Aid, people. <clears throat> Drink it. Here's what I know. Sheeple aren't new. No. it They're not. There's... Um, The only way I've learned that you know, the only way my brain can process it is that there are a limited number of categories of human beings. Right? You've got the dumb and you got the alphas that go fight wars, right? The heroes, the Audie Murphys, people like that, right? Yeah. All the way down to the sheeple. And because one of the things I learned going through uh, formal behind the scenes classes at the uh, Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. <clears throat> they call them leadership courses, but they're really not. Uh, obviously, you can take leadership lessons from it, but what they're teaching is when good people do nothing, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. And they teach the real history of uh, the Nazis coming to power, all of the people who did nothing to stop them, and what happened to the Jews, right? Yeah, and, the, and not the, just the Jews, but other people as well. But an important interjection, also the Germans willingly giving up their long arms that were for sport and recreation. That's, oh yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, I mean that's that was, all that was part a key of to it. it. That was a key and to it. What they teach is all the small steps, the little baby steps that led up to the Holocaust. You know, so you had. You know, Hitler coming to power, you had the Nazi youth, you had the brown shirts walking with the local police to help them, help them, uh, all the rights being uh, taken little by little by little. Meanwhile, the propaganda arm is feeding you little bits of information, misinformation and lies, tiny bite by tiny bite until you believe that everything that's wrong in life is due to the Jews. Yeah. You know, and one of the things that I can tell you right now is uh, everything that's wrong in America is due to those evil gun owners, those guns. We got to get rid of those yep. guns. Yeah. Instead of the criminals. Yeah. Right. Well, back in 39, 38, 
you know, everything that's wrong in Germany is because of the government, the corrupt bankers that aren't Jews, the uh, corrupt mayors and whatever. Oh, no, no, can't say that because that's the truth. Uh, And it doesn't uh, perpetuate our agenda, so we got to say the Jews because Hitler was insane and have no idea why he was blaming the Jews for everything. You know, yeah. I just don't. Yeah. And I don't think anybody ever will, honestly. No. Uh, hopefully it wasn't an Oedipus thing since his mom was of Jewish descent, which would yeah. make Hitler Jew, but that's a different thing altogether. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so um, anyway, um, I'll, I'll take my famous left turn. So you're, I saw on the uh, last couple of days you were making a wah handle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Awesome. Oh, thanks. Um, what were those materials, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I, d- I didn't know what type of the wood was. And then the gentleman that actually stabilized it for me, uh, Sharp Carpenter on the old Instagram, uh, he let me know it is Spalted Beach. Uh, was the wood, and then this black canvas micarta in the middle with two thin white pieces of G10 liner. And, and uh, I, I know it's obvious that you put all those together with uh, some kind of epoxy. Um, mm-hmm. What kind do you use? I use DevCon. Uh, so this this was a little kick to the nuts I had. <laughs> Sorry to put it so crude. I went uh, on my motorbike. I was uh, you know dropping some packages off in the city and. I, for some reason, it popped into my head. It's like, I've only got a quarter of a, a bottle of each, you know, resin and hardener. And I'm right by a Calgary fastener. So I'm like, I'm going to go grab some more. And I always knew it was expensive. And I, I don't know what, maybe, I, let me see. I got a water bottle here. I would say it might be like eight ounce bottles, maybe 250 mils, maybe a little bit more. It's definitely not a 16 ounces, probably an eight ounce of hardener and an eight ounce of resin. Like they're not that big. You know, you may have seen them in my videos. You know how much I pay for that? How much? Hundred and fourteen dollars. Holy, hundred and fourteen bucks. Oh, I didn't like. I know. I, I I think the price have just skyrocketed. I know resins have just gone insanely expensive, and a lot of that's due to the uh, there's a shortage of resins for making particle board and stuff like that. And it's all kind of tied to the lumber industry because they weren't processing wood and, and stuff. And, oh, man. Yeah. I, I thought I used to pay like $70 for it before, 60 or 70 bucks, which was expensive. But it is phenomenal stuff. Like, you know, when I glue all these segments up, if I need to trim the handle down, you know, sometimes I'm like, okay, I need to square it all up. And I'll actually just cut it in my bandsaw. And so I'll end up with a piece of wood that's about one inch wide by one eighth of an inch thick right? Like just a little, looks like a door shim or something. And I'll have that white piece of G10 on there, same size, the piece of uh, canvas micarta. And and so basically I've got all these little segments that are one inches by an eighth of an inch thick. And I'll actually bend them to see at what point they break. And I've had some of them where the wood will crack before the glued joints between. So I'm like, it's some pretty impressive stuff. You, you know, if you can get an eighth of an inch by one inch surface area, uh, you know, it's it's pretty impressive how well it works. Yeah. I guess that'd be an eighth of a square inch, wouldn't it? Yeah. And uh 
But man, is it expensive. I had no idea. I was like, oh, chingus. That's for ding dang donkulous. Yeah, when I was doing laminates, it was, uh, I used West Systems mm-hmm. One Epoxy and uh, same thing. Uh, before I started using it, and before I spent, you know, 150 bucks for, you know, a gallon jug of each. Uh, so 150 each, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought the little one. And in fact, when I was talking to the guy on the phone, he's like, eh, I'm going to send you this sample, you know, because I was buying other stuff too. Oh, okay, yeah. So he sent me the, the uh, disposable uh, uh, syringe style that mixes as in the nozzle. Yep. And this stuff was freaking amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I in-grain in glued something, and it was stronger than the board itself. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah. Yeah, I use West Systems as well. Um was it the 204 and the 102? I forget. It, it's what they call a fast hardener. Uh, West Systems also makes one that's like super quick. Uh, what do they call that one? Shoot. It's got a, it's kind of like a different line. Uh, but yeah, I use their West Systems and they've got like the same resin. And then you can use a resin with like two different types of hardeners. Like one's a 102 or 104 and one's a 204. I forget what the nomenclature is, but... Uh, I have the one that's supposed to be a fast setting and it'll kind of firm up within an hour and then fully cure, I think in 24. And so sometimes what I'll do, say if I'm preparing a whole bunch of handle scales that are going to have liners and stuff, uh, it's kind of nice because, and then I've got the, they have these pumps. And so obviously the resin is way more volume uh, to the hardener. And so you buy the pump system. So one pump of the resin, and then you go one pump of hardener and it, it's kind of, designed for the right ratio so you don't have to yeah, measure yeah. it out or anything that's what i've got too yeah and uh so if i'm say doing like i want to do five or six sets of handle scales i'll use that stuff and then i'll just let it dry overnight um but with the devcon that i use it's a five minute epoxy and it is legit five minutes like everything's got to be ready to go and if you run into a little foo bar on the way you're done it's like oh crap <laughs> you know as soon as you get lacquer thinner on there and get it cleaned off because you leave it for a few more seconds and it's over. But I do like it. The thing I really like about it, like those segments, I glued them all up and I was using the dowel method. And, you know, I leave the actual tang of the knife in there for about two minutes, maybe three minutes. I pull it out and it's so firm and so tacky. Like I can just get the knife out. But then, you know, a minute later, it's not moving. Even 10 seconds after, it's not like that glue's coming back in into the void that was left with when the knife was pulled out of there. So for those wad glue ups, man, it works so good. And then when I'm done, you know, I let it cure for, I think I left that one for three or four hours, which is I've done it as, as quick as like 40 minutes later. And I've never had a problem like grinding hard on it. And I know probably not ideal, but I haven't had issues with that stuff. And then I just heat up the tang and just slide it in there just to kind of clean up that hole again. And you've got a beautiful fit. And then once everything's done, I've done shaping the handle and stuff. Then I'll put a little couple dabs in the bottom of there and then actually epoxy it in place. But I kind of might try this one without that because like I I fit these on with a hammer. So I kind of stick the tang in and then on the back of the handle, I tap it with the blade pointing to the ground and just that motion kind of shoves it up in there. Right. And then when I want to get it out, I actually have to stick it. I take another board, like a little stick of wood and I put that on the shoulder of the handle, you know, right where the tang goes into, and I have to hit the board to get it out. So I'm wondering, you know, that traditionally the Japanese, they don't use glue on, on those. 
and I know that because um, I was talking with Kent. Oh, shoot. What's his name? Kent? I forget his name. Uh, anyways, he owns a company called Knifeware here, and he imports tons of Japanese knives. And he said the one thing he's had to start doing is asking them to put a little bit of glue in their handles. And they thought he was crazy. He said, what are you talking about? We don't glue these. And he said, no, here in, here in North America, we're not as, they don't respect them as much. They'll put them in the dishwasher and they'll do that once. And then, the, you know, the, the wood will swell a little bit and all of a sudden the blades loosen there. So they get all mad. So uh, he asked against their traditions and they didn't, some factories won't do it. They said, nope, you can, we can sell you these knives, but we will not glue a handle on. That's not the way we do our knives, but. I always do it because I don't want a knife. I don't want a blade falling out. But then again, a lot of their handles are more utilitarian. You know, they'd be kind of like a soft wood with a, like a harder wood ferrule, just so that, you know, that's going to be the part close to the food. So you can clean that off. But then the rest of the handles, you know, a little bit more porous, but it's interesting. Interesting. And this knife, I don't know, man, this was a knife I forged from a file. And you know, the one thing I'm realizing with forging is that like I always think okay so let's just kind of you know you hammer in the tip of the blade and then uh, I wanted a distal taper hammered in so I hammer that in and then I start you kind of have it so it's kind of like a banana where the the cutting edge would be on the inside curve and so it's kind of like a crescent and I'm, I'm going to be editing a video that'll be coming out tomorrow so that kind of see how it all takes place and then when you start hammering in your bevels it actually goes to straight and uh, I forget where I learned that. I saw somebody do it or heard him talking about it. But um, it's funny because you forge this thing and it's like, oh, okay, cool. And I didn't want to do too much profiling after. I wanted the shape that I get with a hammer to be what I get. And man, it is not a kitchen knife. Like I wanted this to be a kitchen knife, but it just looks like a utility hunter, the blade that I, I put some pictures on Instagram. And I'm like, that is not the knife that I wanted to make at all. But I, I left it because I mean... It's interesting because I, I'll draw out a knife in stock removal and you get the shape, the overall profile, perfect, how you want the belly to be. And um, and then you just cut it out, right? So there's, there's really no surprises. There's no, oh, but I'm thinking of it now, trying to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to make the profile that I want when I'm forging? And I have no clue. It's such a different world. It's, oh, no, you could forge it out and then just grind it, profile it, like you do know, stock removal. But man, I've ugh, it's crazy. And you watch these Japanese smiths that can just hammer out a knife and they put in the perfect belly, and they just oh, it's so crazy. It's like another world. It's got me, uh, it's got me up at night trying to think. You know, what if I did this, or how would I get that that radius more gentle? You know, that's no, fun stuff. Fun stuff. Yeah, I uh <clears throat> Todd. <laughs> I made uh made some decisions about some things that have been you know, taking time because of the world situation and the prices and blah blah blah. Yeah. So uh construction and material prices are coming down. So yeah. uh I did some uh old uh Google searching and uh, found some insulation for way less than the quote I had. Uh, so as it gets, uh, when it gets a little cooler post July, August, I think in August I'm going to order it. So that way I have it come yep. September. Right on. And uh, order the sheath, the flooring and the 
wall sheathing and stuff. And that gives me the summer to clean out the shop. Yeah. And get things moved around. Because uh, my metal work, most of my metal working stuff, like two of my older welders, my uh, my little metal bandsaw and some other stuff, all upstairs still, and it needs to go downstairs. Yeah. So I've, you know, made it happy that the prices are coming down now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not that I couldn't afford it when it was high, but that's just stupid. Yeah, I know. That, that's a thing, right? It's like, I, I mean, grateful to be in a position where it's like, you know, it's the same thing when we're, we're buying dirt bikes for the, the kids. Like the kids, like they work for us and we pay them well. Um, and they work for my parents and they get paid super, super well. <laughs> But um, grandparent rate. <laughs> oh, dude! I, like, not joking. What? Shoot! I don't. I probably shouldn't even say because it's obscene. I'm like, I wasn't making that much money. I don't think when I was thirty. Oh, I mean, they work hard. They they do work hard, and you know, I'm, I'm proud of them like crazy. But uh, so they buy their own dirt bikes. I'm like, you know, and we we pay you. You you help us with Etsy stuff. We you know, there's certain things they do themselves just for room and board. Like the the boys now mow the lawn, which is great. And, uh, anyways, so looking for dirt bikes and man, like I kind of was looking at prices and I'm like, I remember looking like a year ago and everything was a thousand dollars cheaper and it's kind of like, well, whatever. And you kind of wait and you wait and you look for another couple of weeks, couple of months. It's like, well, that's just what it is. And then you'll get a whole bunch of them. Like, like half of them will be $2,000 more than they were a year ago. And that's when it's like, you know what? could buy that and the, my boy's like i want this one i'm like no it's like i got the money he's like i know you do but that's just stupid like you said right like grateful to be in a position where that still hasn't taken you out of the market and it's not going to be a big deal but just on principle kind of it's like no no that's just there's no reason for that and uh yeah it's it's emotional stuff you know Had an interesting conversation um with a gentleman uh he picked up my old dust collectors guy i knew and uh you know, the talk, I don't know why we got that talking about Bitcoin and all this stuff. And, you know, he had said that, we, you know, our generation is kind of the last one that actually grew up with money, right? Like using currency. And it's true. I mean, I mean, we, I mean, I carry like a hundred bucks cash on me and that's in case, you know, if my card ever doesn't work or something. Uh, but a lot of times I don't take my wallet anywhere because I can just pay with my watch. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he said, you know, the value of currency, um, like we don't get it. And and he was also saying something like um, this electronic stuff's all manipulated by other people and the value of Bitcoin is just controlled by everybody else. And I kind of, I said, oh, I don't, I, I don't really think that's true. I think the governments can do whatever they want, but ultimately it's an exchange of an agreement between two people, right? So if I have a motorcycle that last year was worth a thousand bucks and I try to sell it for 4,000 this year, if somebody else says it's worth it, then that's the value of that motorcycle, right? And and four thousand of these dollars is worth one motorbike, and it's it's kind of an agreed upon thing, and it's interesting. Like value is still basically dictated by what people are willing to pay. You know, it's like art. You know, sometimes somebody will put rat, 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 rat on a board three times, and that'll go for seven, several million dollars because one person agreed that that is worth it to me. So that is literally the value of that piece. But it's the same thing. Thinking about the price of wood, it's like, mm, I don't agree that that's worth that much money, you know? That's good. It's good the prices are coming down. 
But uh, I just got a notification here, Todd. Yeah, we won't talk about that. Okay. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Uh, somebody's been doing some online shopping here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you just bought a knife again. I did. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, thank you, it Todd. Is, well, no, thank you. Um, it, I told you it was killing me to have a, speaking of, you know, collecting art and, or collecting things or buying things. Um, you know, for me, having a Jeremy Gert homesteadknife.com uh, knife out there that was for sale um, is like you finding on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist uh, uh surly bike at half the price that no one wants. Yeah. In perfect condition. <laughs> You're like, ah, you start jonesing and you got to have it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's funny because I was looking, so I bought the fixed gear bike in the fall. And I've ridden it, you know, I bought it in the wintertime. And when I, it's like snowy and stuff, and it's a road bike, skinny tires. And I took it out the summer, and that's the first time I've ridden it since I bought it. And I'm like, oh, man. But it's like you said, I got a really good deal on it. I could I could sell it right now for three times what I paid for it, and that would still be, like, totally fair market value, like, without giving anybody the COVID gouge. Um, but I'm like, ah. And I see it there, and it's up on my mezzanine, and I'm like, maybe I'll just keep it to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> like I just everything about that bike I just love but the reality is I don't get to ride that bike like uh, it's terrible in the gravel like we got a, about a, a half a mile gravel to get to the highway and it's it's almost to the point where you can't yeah you have to walk it because the tires are so skinny and if the road's been graded good luck but then it doesn't have brakes which is what I like about it because there's no no extra crap and it's just clean lines but then it's like it's not I used to ride a brakeless bike all the time, brakeless fixed gear bike, but it's not practical anymore. We got some hills, and when you go down the hills, that's the hardest thing because you got you're flexing your legs the whole time, and if you ever, you know, if your pedal ever comes off, it's over. Like you're literally holding on. <laughs> you get those pedals going like this, and and like like I said, it's a fixed gear bike, so there's no coasting. Oh, one of those suckers hits your foot, and when you try to reengage, it is painful. It sometimes knock you right off the bike, but. Yeah, I know. You know, I was happy. I was just gonna let that knife sit there, and but well, I guess I won't now. I can ship it out to you. <laughs> um, no, I I like that one. It's uh, it's got a really good feel, and uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's got so that's a gentleman made the micarta. Is uh, True North micarta, Rob. Uh, he was a retired firefighter, and he actually. He was retired from making my Carta too. He's been doing it for a couple of years and kind of established a customer base, good quality stuff, and uses a lot of fire hose, a lot of interesting combinations. And um, yeah, and so he built this up. And then after he retired from his fire hall and he did it for, I don't know, two or three years, and he, he enjoyed it. And I think it was kind of like a learning, you know, you get into a hobby and you want to figure things out. And then it's kind of like, okay, I've got it figured out. And ultimately, what he wants to do is just go fishing now. Like he's got a cabin up north and he's like me doing this and, and making all this micarta. It's like, I'm supposed to be retired. And so he sold his business and, uh, you know, well, he of, used to be a firefighter. Yep. And then he made, then he retired from that and started making fire hose micarta. I wonder where he got the fire hose from. Oh yeah. 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 All the used stuff. He, he sent me a whole bunch of it. Like, uh, cause he's still, you know, with the old boys goes out and brings some donuts and then, they have to certify their hoses or after a certain amount of time, they're not allowed to use them, which makes sense. 
you know, and so yeah. they they literally throw them away, or they're trying to. They say there's some places, some cities that that can actually do some recycling and stuff. But he says probably eighty percent of all the old hoses end up in the garbage, so he just takes them. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not I'm not throwing stones. I'm just saying that's a brilliant move. Yeah, yeah. And the, some of these hoses, uh, I don't know if all of them or if it's like a new thing, but they'll have directional arrows. You know, just like the chevron. So it's not like a pointing arrow, but it's just. You know, like for a landing strip or something like that, yeah. just the, the chevron. And so they'll have that always facing the exit so that if a firefighter's ever, you know, gets disoriented, he's got his hose and, you know, that's all, all he has to do is look at it. And if somebody else comes upon this hose and something's like, okay, I need to get out of here, you just follow the hose because it's got the arrow that points Absolutely. to the truck. And so he made me some of my card. I still haven't used it because I'm waiting for the knife that's going to fit on. But it's a bright green hose with orange arrows on it. it's really cool and uh I thought that's kind of neat kind of interesting story you know something that that actually had a different life and was like used in fighting fires you know maybe maybe not maybe they just recertify them every certain many months whether or not they've been to a fire or not but fire departments are usually pretty busy so <laughs> i'm sure some of this this material has been in a fire fighting situation yeah probably yeah yeah, no, so, so I'm going to put that uh, wall handle knife together and get that done. And then um, I'd like to, I was hoping to do it today. I don't think I'll have time, but uh, I got some things I need to do to my motorcycle. I got a oversized gas tank for it. I want to put that on because uh, right now it's got like a three-gallon gas tank, 3.3. And my range, I, I, I rode it until I hit reserve and it's 178 kilometers, <laughs> which is not very far. And so I bought an Acherby's, uh, like an aftermarket one that's 6.6 .6 gallons. So that should give me like at least 300 kilometer range. So I want to get that on. I want to do a couple other things to it. And, uh, oh, that bike is like an obsession, man. Oh, I like it. <clears throat> you know, you're talking about putting a bigger tank on a bike. Mm -hmm. Back when I had my, uh, wide, my Harley Wide Glide, I put a bigger tank on it. It looks exactly like the factory tank, just bigger. Yeah. And it doesn't, the outside dimensions aren't that much bigger side to side because that, that would just be ludicrous on that bike. Yeah, yeah. It's a tiny bit taller in a weird kind of angled way and then deeper. Oh, and okay. then the inside doesn't have, it's built stronger but with less baffle. Yeah. Anyway, everybody was like, oh, you got to change to center of gravity and it's blah, blah, blah. it sure did and it made it about 50 times better really because that bike center of gravity is like two feet below the surface of the road just about <laughs> yeah um it's just it's too low yeah and i know you know if you've ridden a motorcycle you kind of understand you want the center of gravity in a certain place mm -hmm. for a road bike yeah. You want it in a different place if you're uh, racing. You want it in a different place if you're on a drag bike. You want it in a different place if you're motocross. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Wide Glide is a cruiser, and you want that center of gravity kind of in the middle of the bike, mm -hmm. and it's not from the factory. Don't care what anybody says. And once I put the bigger tank on it, held. It changed it by like two gallons, two and a half gallons. 
And it was so much better. Oh, my God. That bike rode um, a lot smoother hmm. and turned. Oh, it was great. Yeah. That bike used to want to um, literally fight you going through a turn. Oh, really? Uh, but once I put the bigger tank, which means heavier, was, you know, especially when it was full, all oh, that thing was a dream. Hmm. And uh, although I did also find... And this was before I put the tank on, so it's unrelated. Uh, when they assembled the bike, they, you know, kind of didn't tighten everything <laughs> yeah. um, to spec. And because I was a motorcycle mechanic, I got the bike, got it, went directly home, and broke out the tools. Yeah. I'm going to retorque everything. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, the motor mounts weren't torqued. Yeah. The front Christmas tree top wasn't uh, torqued correctly. It was torqued, just not correctly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a couple other things that weren't torqued correctly. In <laughs> those, the, uh, those can really ruin your day if they just come a little too loose while you're driving down the freeway. No kidding. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? what? <laughs> and then the front wheel wasn't uh, properly aligned. Oh, wow. And I, I knew that as soon as I left the dealership. Yeah. I was like, well, that's not right. Yeah. So. Man, Harley's hurting right now. Like, like yes, it is. You, you look at their business they, for the last 20 years. It's they just did been, it to themselves. Yeah. Harley had a following for uh, almost a century. Mm-hmm. Even in the bad years. Yeah. Even in the AMC years. EMF, yeah. They, they had a following, right? Yeah. People would just buy an oil pan, no problem. Yeah. yeah. And then they started looking at, oh, we need to pacify the snowflakes and the uh, millennials. Yeah. And then they started making bikes v- that weren't Harleys. Yeah, the V-Ride. They got rid of Buell. Yeah. Uh. That, that would have been where they should have gone with that stuff, the millennial think, stuff. Thank you. Keep the Buell line mm-hmm. and do that stupid stuff there. And, and, and they did make some stupid stuff, but put it in the Buell line. Yeah, and but the thing is that Buell line was highly sought after. And keep the Buell line. Yeah, and it was awesome. Like, I mean, I've always, I, I was kind of always against Harleys because they were just, you know, old Russian tractor technology, unreliable. Uh, I've since changed. Once you spend any time riding on them, I I do believe there's something about a Harley that kind of gets into your blood. But man, I love the Buells. You know, they got the the they came out with the brakes that were mounted on the outside of the rim, right, rather yeah. than on the hub. And I'm like, that is absolutely brilliant. Look at that massive braking leverage, yeah. and the way Buell they would hang the engine. Yeah, the way that they'd move the muffler to the bottom of the bike. Because why would you want that weight up high? Again, thinking about race oriented center of gravity. Exactly. They, it, there's no rules. They keep just, his they super bike. Yeah. And then keep that other bike. I can't remember the name of it. Um, but every Harley dealership ever used those Buells as the practice bike in their classes. Or oh, the the Blast. Yes, the Buell Blast yeah. was one of the best starter bikes yeah, on Steph Earth, if one. not the best. Yeah, we bought Steph a brand new one. I, In fact, if I could get one today, I would. Oh, they're cheap. Um. But you know, there's no, there's absolutely no parts support. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, 
a so, quick story about the blast real quick. So ahead. when we got married, I had a lot of bikes. I had uh, four bikes of my own that were registered and insured. And then Steph had hers. And I eventually would crash all my bikes off here <laughs> in various states of disrepair. And I ended up in the situation where I had no rideable motorcycle just because wheelies and doing stupid stuff, stunting. I go out in the morning, I fire up Steph's blast. She was asleep in bed when I went out. All of a sudden she comes out in her house, goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm just going to work, honey. She goes, get off my motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) I said, what are you talking about? I said, all my bikes are broken. She goes, exactly. Get off my motorbike. And she didn't let me ride her bike to work. (laughs) Smart lady, smart lady. Yeah. Tried to to commandeer her blast, but didn't happen. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. No, you keep the, his super bike, 1100. Mm-hmm. And then keep the blast. Add if you wanted to go with that night train and all that mess, make it a Buell. You can even co-brand it, you know, Harley Davidson Buell, you know, night train. Yeah. Put all that mess over there. Go back to your roots. Yeah. In we, fact, uh, uh, never mind. Um, like even Buell is an adventure touring bike. Like if they could have, you know, they're still using a V-twin power plant, which manufactured to, to precise tolerance, like to a good engineering standard is a very reliable engine air cooled, you know, like put that into an adventure touring bike. That's the fastest growing segment on the market right now. Instead, like Harley's adventure touring motorbike that they just launched this year, the Pan American, it's a brand new engine. It's different than any other liquid cooled engine they've made. And here's all the kinds of stuff that I don't like about it. So when you, when you slow down, it will lower itself by two inches. So it's got easier. So if you have shorter legs, then once you're at a certain speed, it'll automatically come up and it's got four electronically. I think it's four uh, electronically selectable suspension modes, depending on what type of terrain you're riding on. And I'm like, okay, you you lost me. Like this is not an adventure motorcycle. Like, come on. You don't take a Mexican lowrider, you know, car and take that. Oh, you can slam it down and drop it at the lights. That's stupid, man. Just put some quality suspension on there and you, that's all you need. Maybe make an adjustable link in the rear so you can, and, and two seat options like they did with the Buell so you can fit two different types of riders, you know, like, oh. And the only, only reason they're doing that is because, you know, KTM is dominating, BMW is dominating. The fastest growing motorcycle market is adventure riding. And the thing I've, you know, this really great podcast, I'm actually going to recommend everybody check it out. Adventure Rider Radio, top notch, top quality, very informative, love that podcast. But he was talking to actually the the full engineering and development team of the Pan American. And, you know, he said, the one thing that I wonder is that the branding part of it, right? Like when you walk into a Harley dealership, there's certain things you expect. You're going to see the leather vests. You're going to see this, like. And when people walk into a Harley dealership, um, it's, you know, how, how are you going to separate that out? Because when you walk into a, a, a place that sells B&Ws and KTMs, it's a very different store. You know, they've got camping gear, they've got luggage, they've got lightweight stoves, and it, it's all about adventure and, you know, uh, no leather anywhere. It's all like high tech fabrics with protection and ventilation, adventure touring. You know, that's a whole different feel than walking into a traditionally Har- Harley Davidson store. You know, and every Harley Davidson is laid out the exact same way because it's a formula. It's like we're going to this, they're going to walk by this, and they're probably going to buy this, and then they can finally get to the parts they need. You know, and 
interesting. Like I, I think the V Rod was kind of wasn't successful. It wasn't an amazing bike. It it looked horrible. Uh, I remember I saw one of the very first ones that ever came out, and it was in California. I was working in Hollywood at a at a production studio. Uh, the show Seventh Heaven. We we did some work for them. We had to rent them a carousel. And so these guys are all like, they're not the Teamsters, but the union guys that work at studios who have like the best jobs on earth. And he got one of the first five Harley Davidson, uh, the V-Rods to ever be sold in the U.S. And I saw it. Like the day he got it, he wrote it to work. And uh, the caterer was doing pancakes for breakfast. (laughs) One of the guys I was kind of buddies with, he says, here, come over here. So he took some blueberry syrup (laughs) and he drippled on the transmission lines and a little on the ground. (laughs) And he called him over and said, hey, your bike's leaking. <laughs> he just flipped. I knew I shouldn't have bought a V-Rod. Why did Harley do this? They can't do anything right. Oh, so funny. But yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, don't, I think they're just going to keep going down, in my opinion. You know. But. Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Why on earth? Would you pay seventeen, nineteen thousand dollars for a Harley Davidson adventure touring bike that looks the way it does, has the options it does, is not proven when you can go get a Honda for three, four, five grand less? Yeah. Yeah. That has some probably arguably the best um, touring bikes in the world. Uh, and the adventure touring bike, you know, have decades of tech Honda technology in it. Yeah. The Canadian. I'm just saying. Yeah. And then if you want to be a top knot douchebag, you buy a BMW. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there are some BMWs that I don't mind, but a lot of them I'm not crazy about, but, uh, so in Canada, the Canadian price for the one that has the, you can buy the base model which is 20999 or the one with the semi-active suspension, adjustable ride height, that one is $24,199. Uh, no, no, it's not. It's nothing because I won't buy it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in and fact, in- I was just looking at the Harley lineup, the new one. I haven't looked in years because um, it's it, painful for me. Yeah. And uh, I... They're, no, they're just not appealing to to this masses right now. Yeah. You know. Yeah. My dad's uh, on a bike. Is there a right bike now. I would buy? Yeah. Well, you know, see, I, I don't know what my dad has, but like every two years he buys a new Harley. It, he puts a lot of miles on. Like, uh, what's the iron butt? A thousand miles in one day or something? It is. One thousand miles in 24 hours. Yeah. So he's gotten that like 10 times. Like, I don't know. And every time he's like, yep, send me my plaque or whatever. He does a lot of riding. And uh, he's actually on a trip right now, a week-long motorcycle trip. Left here, went into BC, and then him and his, met his friend. And then they were going up northern BC and then into northern Alberta and then back down. Um, his friend has Parkinson's, and so he's actually on a three-wheeled thing now, which is, yeah, I mean, he's out there riding, you know. Um, but he took my mom's... It's a 99 Heritage Springer Classic. It was the last year that the Heritage Springer came with all the frills on the leather saddlebags. Yeah. And uh, 
man, I've I've put a lot of I myself have probably put three or four thousand kilometers on that bike. Um, that's a bike I rode when like right before I got married. My dad and I did it was a, like a four day motorcycle trip, like Nevada, California, Arizona, and we would literally. 16 hours a day, maybe 18 hours a day, we'd ride. We literally, we'd get up, have breakfast, we'd ride, we'd have lunch, we'd ride, we'd have supper, and then we'd ride a few hours after. Wherever we ended up, we'd crash at a hotel, shower, get the grime, and then the next day, get up and ride. It was amazing. But um, that bike was something special. And, you know, some of the other Harleys my dad's had are special. Like, there's just something about them. Um, His new ones, like, one of these ones with the big fairings and a big stereo. <laughs> and I'm just like, and I get that, that, that works for people. I always just think, why don't you just get a convertible? <laughs> Cause you've almost got full encapsulation with all these fairings. And, you know, I, I guess it's probably more comfortable for my mom if she ever goes Well, not that she ever does, but I don't know. It's, it's interesting. I, well, here's the difference. Um, a 45 year old man with a, uh, uh, heritage soft tail, windshield, stereo, all that. Yep. Is a midlife crisis for a man with a penis. <laughs> yeah. A convertible Corvette is for a <laughs> man with no penis and a top knot. <laughs> That's right. Or a ponytail. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and I can't find, I just looked at all 2021 bikes. Yeah. You know, I can't find one that looks like. A Harley I would buy. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. I guess the, the only one that I would get would be the Sport Glide, and then I would have to change everything about it, so I'd just buy a used. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I mean, the wheels look like they have bent tuning forks in them. Hmm. Oh, my got, God. Yeah, I got to take a look. I haven't looked at their lineup for a while. Um. One thing real quick. Have you ever seen that you said top knot? Have you did I tell you about yes. it? That video stop the knot? Yes. And then their <laughs> apology video is even funnier. Yeah. So that is another recommendation. And I can't believe it's real <laughs> until you figure out they're Australian, then you're like, Oh yeah, they're really cutting people's hair. Yeah. Yeah. So if anybody's listening, you want to watch something funny, it's an old video, been on YouTube for quite a few years. Stop the knot. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I got it. Run, run. <laughs> <laughs> Put him in a jar. <laughs> he looks like an onion. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I was doing some research on my bike, my old DR, and uh, so mine's a 2017. And as of this year, that bike has remained entirely unchanged for over 25 years. This is the 25th year of this current version. <laughs> but, I, but I'm like, you know what? That's kind of, you know, I think about that. I'm like, if Harley could do that with some of their bikes, you know, like literally the difference between a, a 2021 DR650 and mine and like a 2000 is the color of the plastic. And every year it's a slightly different color of plastic. And that's it. But the th- the thing is, it's a good bike and there's really nothing you need to do. Now, there's been little things that have happened, like uh, the neutral sending switch to tell you when you're neutral. I guess that was kind of infamously the, the screws they put that on with. There's two of them. They didn't Loctite them from the factory or something for a few years. And often those would back out. And there's a couple places where they could actually get into your crank, <laughs> you know, your crank housing. Um, obviously, little things like that they address, but... It's like, man, it's it's a simple air-cooled. There's an oil cooler on it as well. And it's just, 
it's a thumper. You know, everybody says every single you're talking about torquing things down on bikes. Uh, that's one thing that a lot of people say when you get these things. Or anytime you take a bolt off, you always have to put new Loctite on it because those things will just vibrate. They just vibrate so much. <clears throat> every you can, every yeah. time. Yeah. But it's like, you know what? There's a there's a cult following around them. Um, I, I, I remember when my friend I used to work with at Sanjel bought one. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And ever since then, it was kind of in the back of my head. And then he, you know, sent me a picture of him. He came out to visit. He was, didn't tell me he was coming. We were in, we were at like Bass Pro Shops, and he sent me a picture of his bike in front of our house when it was being built. He goes, "Where are you?" I'm like, "I'm at Bass Pro Shops. Why don't you call me next time before you come and I can be home?" You know, and it, it just seen pictures and stuff like this. And then I was like, ah, "Maybe you should look into one of those." And I don't know. I, I'm so happy with it. Like, it, it's nothing special. It's not the latest and greatest. It's cheap. But they say, you know, those are the kind of bikes you can literally just ride around the world. And if you want parts for them, you can get them all over the world. And they're not fast. They're not fancy. The suspension generally sucks compared to what you can buy out there today. But you can do things to make it work or you can just live with it. And I ride on gravel roads and cool. It's a perfect bike for me, you know. Um, Yeah, you, I don't know. You wish... You wish companies could look at some of their lines and some of their products and be like, you know, this, this could be a legacy product. You know, there's certain Harleys that let's just never change this. You know, every year will be a different color scheme, but let's just keep it the same. Yeah. And, and have your, you can change your colors every year, but let, let it be available that if I want to order a bike, I can get any heritage color I want. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what would make there's it custom. a blue. There's a blue that Harley had for, you know, one year periodically in its history. Is it that the light? Beautiful blue I've ever blue? seen on a motorcycle. And you can't get it. Yeah. Is it like a light sky blue? Yes. Yeah. I saw a bike pulled over on the side of the road. The tank was two tones. So the top was that blue and the bottom was like a cream white. And it was an old Harley. Yeah. And uh, I pulled over. I said, everything all right? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm just taking a smoke break. I'm like, okay, cool, right on. But I'm like, oh, I saw that a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, that is a beautiful color. Yeah, you know, make that. And and then here's the thing, too, is that people see this bike that hasn't changed for years, but they see this color, and they're like, oh, that one's, uh, oh, you got a 2015. He goes, no, actually, this is a 2020. I ordered the color. I wanted a legacy color, right? And it's like, oh, totally cool, you know? All these things that just make it interesting. Like like one thing they say, nobody buys a DR650 and leaves it alone. Everybody modifies it and makes it into what they want it to become. And that's part of the cult following. Like I can look at somebody's DR and be like, oh, dude, you did that? Oh, cool. I was thinking about that upgrade. You know, and it's it's it makes it more interesting as an owner. Whereas with a Harley Davidson now, it just kind of seems like, and I think that's, I think that's their biggest demise. I mean, I don't know. Here we're uh, <laughs> business advice for a great American manufacturing company. But having said that, what they're doing now well, is not it. working. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Their track record isn't so great as of late, but I mean, don't, don't keep doing the same thing because you think it's politically correct. It's not. Yeah. Oh my God. We need to change with the times with these new generations. Okay. Here, 20 years later, are you selling bikes? Well, no. Are your company about to go under? Well, yeah. Well then, go back. Yeah. Stupid. Yeah. And like, if I was just looking, and if I can get healthy, or, and they had the bike I want, 
I think I'd buy a new Harley next year. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, man. But I'm looking at the, I'm looking at even certified pre-owned at my local dealer right now, and I'm like, really? Expensive. I mean, they got a, they got a couple of soft tail low riders, which because that's the first Harley I ever rode, this is my, a good buddy of mine, uh, the best man at my wedding. Even though he's on my poop list now, because uh, last time I saw him face to face was when he retired from the Air Force uh, in the early 2000s, and I talked to him last year, and he said uh, that he had been out of the Air Force longer than he had been in. Meaning, dude, you know, I haven't known you in so long; we're not friends anymore. Hmm. Like, well, that's a kick in the nuts. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. We were closer than brothers, and then you're going to do me like that? All right. Hmm. That's rough. All right. Well, you know. Yeah. Screw you. But I'll, I'll give him a pass because he was dealing with his parents' estate. You know, they had both died within a very close period of time. Uh, uh, he was very, very close with his mom and dad. No, while I was stationed in Montana, I was close with his mom and dad. And huh. not not in a weird way, in his sister too. Um she was older than us and very good friends. But yeah, yeah. She was a very good lady. Hmm. Yeah, so do you like is is that something you want to do? Like want to get a motorcycle? I would ride every day if I my okay. body would let me. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, I hope you get there, dude. Really like Man. Well, one thing I'm going to have to do is get a bike with suspension. Yep. Um, more than that. <laughs> more than their what they what they um, refer to as a shock absorber that really isn't. You know, because yeah. every bike I ever had was a hard yeah. hardtail. So yeah. And no, I need one with a suspension. And I've ridden. Uh. Uh. Ultra Glide, Soft Tails, Honda Gold Wings, uh, uh, Super Bikes. I've ridden uh, several Buells. I've ridden uh, Italian Super Bikes. I've, you know, mm-hmm. ridden a lot, but the ones I've owned are all hardtail. Hmm. Couldn't do that again. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. I always found my dad's. All the Harleys of his that I've ridden on, I found them to be quite comfortable. Like, I don't know. But yeah, no, I know. I know uh, even my mean. wide glide was comfortable till you hit a bump. Then it wasn't. Okay, yeah. You know, and you hit this is, and the wide glide, particularly. It, you hit a bump, and it would literally move the bike over. I'm like, hmm. I've ridden, <laughs> you know mini bikes and it wouldn't do that but yeah there's something weird about the geometry of a wide glide hmm. one it made a straight line smooth road awesome but it made bumps like 10 times worse huh and then a bridge a graded bridge oh my god oh yeah yeah my dad's Throw first you all harley. over the place yeah so my dad's first harley was a dyna wide glide and I did quite a Loved few. It. Yeah, I rode that to Vancouver 
Um, and we were going over, I think, the Coquihalla. I asked him, I, like, we, we had to drive a truck down, and he was doing a motorbike trip there once he got there. And so I said, can we just, let's take the bike out of the truck. And we had some tools and some materials. And I said, I'll just ride your motorbike the whole way. He's like, oh, sure, go ahead. And uh, we're in the Coquihalla going over the pass. And uh, they'd plowed the road. They'd got like a three-foot dump of snow before we got there. And when we're going through, there's about four inches of really fluffy, fluffy powder. So nothing like slushy that moves you around. But I think it was like minus seven. And man, I rode, and this was, we kind of went through like just straight. And I think I was riding this at like two o'clock in the morning, 2 a.m. And I think we got to Vancouver, was it like seven or 8 a.m.? Like I, we literally just rode right through the night. And I was so haggard, man. <laughs> I didn't know what was up and what was down. Oh, that was incredible. I don't know why my dad let me do that. He's just sitting in the truck drinking coffee, and I'm just like, on his motorbike, but... Oh, I liked that bike. They're probably laughing the whole way. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm going to cure him of wanting to ride these motorcycles. It's like, didn't work. Yeah, I know. That was a fun bike. And then he had some really loud exhaust. And I always loved it when somebody would, you know, be a little ignorant or something like that. If they're tailgating you, I'd just flick the kill switch off and then turn it back on. And you get this big backfire. And just, boom. <laughs> People would just hammer their brakes on. It's like, buzz off. And that was a fun bike. <laughs> Yeah, that thing sounded like a shotgun, like right at your ear. You just, boom, that backfire. Holy smokes, that was loud. Loud pipe saved lives. I think the, the loudest bike I ever had was the my 1200 Sportster. Yeah. It was a, it was a one-year-only model. With 12, uh, it was a black edition, but it was just slammed to the ground. Yeah. And... Like 2007 or 8, anyway, um, it's not important. The, the pipes I put on that were <clears throat> incredibly loud. Huh. And then I did some, the engine was tuned from Harley, and then I went be above and beyond that. Yeah. Uh, changing some internal parts, retuning it. I bet you I probably... Couldn't dyno it, didn't dyno it, but I bet you I've added about a third to whatever they rated it at because they're very conservative with yep. their numbers. Uh, anyway, and you unrestrict it, you take off some of their electronic, and the engine is just better for it anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I had to wear hearing protection just to start that bike. I mean, wow. really. Yeah. And I would set off uh, car alarms, <laughs> yeah. uh, not even being close to the car, not even trying to romp it. You just let off the gas to hit a, and then you use the compression of the engine to slow down yeah. and thing backfire a little bit. Yeah. Car alarms and then a county are going off. Yeah. That's a fun, that's fun. We did that. We stayed in. Laughlin, Nevada, on this trip that my dad and I did, and we just stayed at one of the big hotels because there you could get a cheap room, and there's a parkade. It was like a seven layer parkade or something. We had to go all the way to the top, and when he came in at night, we, we set off a couple alarms because we're just basically doing this big loop going up this parkade. 
Then on the way down in the morning, we tried to see if we could set off some more. It's <laughs> so fun. You look back and you see, you know, a couple of rows of lights just flashing and honking. <laughs> have a good day, everybody. Good stuff. Yeah, I have a, I put a custom exhaust on my DR. Uh, shoot, what brand is it? I forget. And it's loud. The stock exhaust on that bike is so restrictive. It's insane. Like, like I've seen cutaways of it and everybody says like, it must've been like a joke to, to make an exhaust work this way. And then so quiet, like it's, it sounds like my civic. And when I'm on the highway, I cannot hear the engine. There's no engine noise. All I hear is a, well, before I had the really aggressive tires and it was just like, I could hear the tires, but I like to hear the bike. You know, I want to hear the engine. And also when people are, you know, when you're riding in traffic, they don't see you when you're on a motorcycle. So if they can hear you, that's a big safety factor in my opinion. And so I got this loud exhaust and the gentleman I bought off of it had two DRs and he was going to get rid of one of them. And he had five different exhausts to choose from. And I think he liked this one the least because it was the loudest, but that's why I like it. Like it's, it's not uncomfortable on the highway. I wear earplugs anyways, because, uh, wind noise and stuff, but I can hear my engine, you know, and when I ride around without earplugs, I can really hear my engine, but there is a baffle. And when I first put the, the muffler on, I uh, stuck it on without the baffle <laughs> and it was, it really hurt my ears. I'm like, oh, basically, you know, like the cherry bomb exhausts where it's just a straight tube with, yeah. with a perforated tube and then some glass pack. That's all it is. I mean, it's nice aluminum, it's nice and shiny and stuff, but when I take that one baffle out, oh man, it's brutal. I always keep toying with the idea of putting it in, but then I'm also like, I like to ride on gravel, you know, and, and this exhaust, if I keep my RPMs really nice and low, like if I see a cop on the side of the highway, I'll just keep my RPMs nice and low and then it's not obnoxious because I've I known people that have gotten ticketed for, you know, too loud of exhaust here and I just don't want trouble. But then also going down country roads and gravel roads, I don't like to let the dogs know that I'm coming as, as much as I can, right? Which was really nice thing with the stock exhaust. Like it <laughs> probably make more noise riding my bicycle and breathing heavy than I would on this DR650, but um, just a balance, I guess, because it's too obnoxious, man. Every dog is going to be chasing you. You know, they'll be at the driveway when you get there and they'll be chasing you down the road and don't need that in my life, so... Always just a nice, happy balance between loud enough to be heard and not stupid obnoxious. But that's fun stuff. Well, we started with uh, uh, COVID sheeple and we could end it with uh, that's right. stupid exhaust. Yep. Nice gamut. Nice. Uh, it's good. You know, like. Obviously, it's, you know, these sounding chambers, and I get sick of hearing everything too much. You know, sometimes if I'll watch, you know, Rebel News is a, a YouTube channel, and they, they're everything that the government's doing wrong, every single thing, and they report on this, report on this, and so I'll watch one of their videos if it's something that's interested me, like that pastor that, that got thrown in jail. Um, I'm like, ah, I kind of want to hear the their what their take is on it, but then YouTube just keeps recommending them. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, I, trust me, I don't like the government but I don't want to hear about how bad the government is all the time. Right. So it's, uh, I think, you know, you and I have very similar beliefs in what's going on and every now and then it's good to chime in, but at the same time, it's not like we want our whole show to be. Oh, real quick. Yeah. You just, you just, um, hit a nerve with me, not you, but you brought up something that hit a nerve with me. YouTube. Oh yeah. I 
went on YouTube. You have to do it on a, a desktop because none of the apps have this option that I can find where it says, I don't want to see this person ever again. Really? Okay. So it won't show me his channel anymore in the recommendations. However, unlike before, I never saw this. Now that I said I don't want to see his channel ever again, any other channel he's appeared on now shows up in my stupid recommendations. I'm like, that's just YouTube messing with me. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Because some of those channels I watch, but they've interviewed him. Yeah. Well, really? Yeah. That's funny. That's weird. And I just got, I I did want to talk about this today, but we can do it next week because that'll be cool because it'll be after. But uh, do you follow uh, mixed martial arts at all? Anything like that? No, not really. Okay. I used to. I used to follow it very closely. Yep. Um, and then I didn't for probably 15 years because of work and life. Uh, and now I'm getting into it again. Uh, oddly enough, when I hurt my back last Saturday and couldn't walk for three and a half days, started catching up on mixed martial arts. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, because, you know, I can't do a lot of stuff that I used to do, but I used to do it. Yeah. And uh, so I just like watching it. Yeah. But this weekend's a, a pretty big fight. Uh, and I just hope that some a certain Irishman gets his teeth bashed in. But yeah, Connor I just McDavid. wanted to ask if you wanted, uh, if you had followed mixed martial arts at all. No, very, very, that. very little. Follow the other fight sport, hockey. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Tampa Bay won the old Stanley Cup. There was yeah. tears you follow being shed. mixed martial hockey. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I go to a fight and a hockey game broke out. <laughs> Actually, it's not so bad anymore. It's kind of no. They, used to be they've more. taken the fun out of hockey. Yeah. Now you got to go to like amateur or local <laughs> yeah. pro team. You know, like the B League. Yep, Jungle to get B the fights. Oh my <laughs> god! Because you know they call it Junior B, right? Or like there's Triple A, Junior A, blah blah blah. And so the the junior B, those are the guys that are never going to make it. Like, I, I, I've known people that have made it, uh, you know, no guy uh, that still plays professionally in Germany, and he's my age. And he's, had, he's made a lot of good money. You know, he makes three four $400,000 a year playing in Germany. Never made it to the big show, but who cares? You know, you literally get paid to play hockey. And uh, But all the rest of them that, that never even are going to get to there, they keep playing, and they, they will never let the dream die. And so we've got this team in Strathmore called the Wheatland Kings, it's Junior B, and we call it Jungle B. <laughs> and like, they'll have their social media. It's like, congratulations to Darren who gave birth to his second son tonight. <laughs> or yesterday, he's going to be playing at the, the game tonight. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. So now you got two kids, and you're still playing hockey like like you're a professional, like you want to make it to the big show? Like, dude, man, give it up, <laughs> you know? And, oh, it's rough, man. Like, these guys aren't, you know, they're, they're good. Don't get me wrong. Like, they... I could never even come close to keeping up at that level. But compared to everyone else that goes on further to even like semi-professional, they're just not, not there. Right. And so they, man, a lot of fights just break out. Oh, it's dirty hockey. You like you say, you'll get some guy who's like 33 still playing and he's just a huge dude and he can't skate fast anymore. Okay. I'm just going to clobber anyone I can get close to, (laughs) you know? So yeah, that's funny. Good old jungle bee. 
<clears throat> I uh, used to keep up with those that league here in America because I had a relative that worked with some of the teams in the back office. Okay. And my hometown got a team. Anyway, one of those players, he made it to the big leagues one year, and then he opted to leave, right? Mm-hmm. And, he's, and he'll tell you, I opted to leave. They didn't cut me. I left. And it was a family thing. Yeah. Um, he said, you know, and uh, as a pro- professional in the big league, I was home less than half the year. Wow. Playing for, you know, the uh, B League, you're, you're never more than a day away from home. Yeah, yeah. Two days away from home, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he's a very religious uh, family man. That's the most important thing to him. Yeah. He said, but beyond that, he was at 41 when he was given this interview. He said, I've been playing since I was 18. The most I've ever made is what I'm making now. And he said, I'm making a quarter million dollars a year because he's not only a player, but he's a player coach. And, you know, the less, the least I've ever made is free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, but I know people in the majors that, you know, you play – Anywhere from three to six years, you make a lot of money, and then you lose it all. Yeah. Because that, even if you play for five years, that's not going to last you the rest of your life. No. He said, I'm richer than most of the people I know that from back then that played in the majors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He said, unless you're Wayne Gretzky, you're not going to be – a multi multi millionaire yeah. in hockey, or unless you're smart with it, like this guy that we talked about in the beginning, Mason Raymond, right? Like he played for eight years and probably made some good money, like mm-hmm. you know, decent money, and then he took all of his money and bought a bunch of farmland. Well, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So now all of a sudden, like farming is something you just can't get into, right? Like I was like, I think it'd always be a dream job of mine to be like a farmer and actually make my full living farming. But, you know, unless you got, I don't know, $10, $20 million kicking around to buy yourself some land and equipment, it's not happening. You know, it's a, it's a generational thing. You take over the family farm and those farms are bigger and bigger and there's fewer and fewer people to take them over. So I thought, man, what a brilliant move for this guy. Retires from the NHL and, uh, you know, buys land. He owns land. There's nothing wrong with owning land. And, and you don't have to now because there's – so few generational farmers left. You don't have to own a bunch of land. No. no. You own your farm and you lease yep. other people's lands um, because some of those people need to lease it at a loss so they can write it off. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, just saying. Yep. But uh, there's a guy up in Indiana that farms a ton of land that way in that, you know, leasing it from other people or people paying him to farm their land. Right. Yeah. Uh, He said, that's actually more profitable because everything he gets is pure profit. Yeah. And you're not doing any work. Cause uh, 
hey, I'll pay you to farm my land, and they come up with a contractual price. But then whatever crop, because he's harvesting them too, he's taking them to market, he gets a cut of that. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, come on. Yep. You know. Yeah. And my dad owns uh, tons of farmland, and he just rents it all out. He said, if we were just still a generational farm, farming our own land, we'd have been broke and homeless by now. Yeah. You have to change. He said, we had to change our uh, business model back in the 80s. Hmm. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. He said, most of the people back then in the 70s and 80s that took all that government money either did not farm or only farm uh, crops for the the, the national uh, like oh god I can't think of the word mm. uh, basically it's a horde of like grain and corn and stuff. Oh, wheat pool? Uh, not necessarily. It's owned off wholly by the federal government, and they use it for uh, not only to control the market, but, you know, if there's a monsoon that hits India and we send them food. Oh, okay, gotcha. Anyway, yep. uh, he said most of the farmers he knew that were in that program, they're all defunct now because, you know, government screwed them over. Yeah, yeah. And then we circle but, back you know, to bad governments. And the government screws <laughs> over everybody. That's right. So enjoy life and be good to the people around you. And just that's all you can do today. You know? Yes. And then uh, one thing you can do, give a uh, five-star rating. <laughs> I don't even know if we need to bother with that stuff. Every podcast you listen to now is like, leave a five-star review. And it goes a long way to get the show out there. It's kind of like, yeah, who cares? <laughs> But, uh, you know yeah. what? Um, like it or not, share it or not, I don't care. No, that's not <laughs> wh- that's not why we do this. In fact, but, if you want to make me mad, go ahead and leave a five star review. <laughs> that's right, you jerk. Yeah. <laughs> no, if if you've listened through this far, we do appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed it, and uh, like like the show claims to be, always will be. It's just a conversation between myself, and my friend Todd. And it's fun. It's fun to do this every week. And, uh, yeah, you guys get an eavesdrop. That's how it kind of works. But thanks a lot, Todd. It was great talking to you again. Absolutely, Jeremy. And, and folks, uh, we'll uh, see you next Friday. Sounds good.